0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. During the Depression, lots of Americans began working on infrastructure projects. But one of those projects turned out to be particularly deadly. It was the Hoover Dam in the Mojave Desert. And in 1931 alone, 13 men died working on it. Not surprisingly, what they died from, considering they were working long hours in the middle of the desert, was heat exhaustion which was when David Dill, who ran a lab studying fatigue, visited the site of the Hoover Dam. He and his colleagues requested that a sign be posted in the dining hall so everybody could see it. The year after the sign was posted, no one died from heat exhaustion. No one died the next year either, or the next. So what did the sign say that turned the tide? It said, drink plenty of water and put plenty of salt on your food. Dill's work was part of a major scientific push to understand the limits of human endurance and to extend those limits. Fundamentally, I mean, to put it in brutal terms, they wanted to squeeze more labor out of the
1: average laborer. Because back then, most people were working in physical tasks, not in, you know, it it was the mirror image of today when we're all sitting at our desks thinking, how can I squeeze in 30 minutes of actually not sitting down?
0: Alex Hutchinson is a columnist for Outside Magazine and the author of Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance.
1: People were tired and fatigued by the end of the day, and and there was this idea of, can we just find the magic formula to squeeze more work out of people? Or do we need to build in things like, you know, weekends and and inconvenient and and money-wasting things like, like limiting work hours to 12 hours and things like that?
0: That push to understand endurance has now been going on for over 100 years and it has consumed everyone from the military to Olympic athletes. But in the last couple of decades, that research on endurance, the research that taught us to think of the human body as a machine that does need to be hydrated and fueled upright, that's now taken a turn.
1: So things like hydration, things like by the time you're thirsty, it's too late, you're dehydrated, you need to be avoid any more than 2% dehydration. A lot of these rules of thumb that we've absorbed and grown up with came from that research. And there's been a, finally, there's been a little bit of pushback saying, actually, human limits are a little bit more elastic, maybe, than what those initial studies th- thought.
0: Hutchinson says that what scientists are zeroing in on is the question of what's happening in our brains when we're doing something hard, and is there a clear limit to what we can handle, either athletic or otherwise? In essence... How much of this is in our heads?
1: So, you know, if you go to sixth grade gym class and say everyone run a mile and everyone runs the same pace, for some people it's going to feel really easy. They're Mm -hmm. they're gifted with a physiology that makes running at that level really easy. Hmm. But once you start saying let's have everyone push to their own physical limits, then that's a learned skill. Nobody is born being able to push themselves to their limits. So athletes who've been training for many years – they have learned to suffer. They've altered their bodies for, for sure. Huh. But they've also altered how close they are, how long they're able to hold their finger in that flame. I and see. so there, there's a bunch of research showing that athletes feel pain the same as all, the rest of us. They don't right. have any dulled sense of pain, but they're right. just willing to tolerate it for longer.
0: Interesting. Um, You know, one of the places that you write about where mental toughness really comes into play is in the realm of breaking records. And there's this very famous record that was broken in the 1950s uh, by a runner named Roger Bannister. He broke the four-minute mile. And people had thought up to that time, humans cannot run a mile faster than four minutes. It's not a possibility. But I am guessing that that breaking of the record reset sort of every runner's mental view as to like, whoa, this actually is doable. Like, maybe I could do it. I
1: I think it definitely did. Now, that message gets, you know, when when I was researching the book, just for fun, I I sort of did some searching through the self-help literature and the the Bannister story gets told and retold and it gets told with uh, total fabrication saying, oh, you know, after Bannister (laughs) broke it, 300 people broke it in the next year. And, you know, soon babies were, you know, wheeling their own (laughs) strollers around the track in in four-minute miles.
0: amazing.
1: Yeah, it's still, you know, actually just in January, the 500th American broke, ran a sub four minute mile. So 500 okay. Americans in history have done it. It's still something that is basically more unusual than climbing Mount Everest. Okay. But humans have been around for whatever, millions of years. Mm. Uh, Bannister did it. The second guy who did it, did it three weeks later.
0: Wow, and four other people vast. did it in
1: the in the next year. Okay. And it, so it soon became something that someone did every year. And right. these days, you know, high schoolers do it. So Yes, there's advances in training and there were changes, but there there was definitely a mental element
0: there. Mm-hmm. You tell a story of yourself. You are a runner, too. And this time when I think you were in college and you were running around a track and you went faster than you had ever imagined, like everybody has their own, you know, limits, which they run within and they can feel like it's hard to, you know, break through. But you did. You want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, in a way this is the origin of this whole book. This is the the mystery moment. I was a competitive runner and so I'd been trying to break 4 minutes for 1500 meters, which is a little bit shorter than a mile, and I'd been stuck at 401 or 402 for about 4 years. So I really had the sense that I was approaching my physical limits and I thought mm-hmm. if I just get the perfect race, I can run 359.99 and then I'll know that I did everything I can. But what happened is I was running this low-key race and the The timekeeper when you're running a track race will call out your time each lap to let you know how you're doing okay and in this case for reasons that aren't clear uh, whether he started his watch at the wrong time or whatever he i I got totally misleading splits that made me believe i was running the race of my life without any increase in effort and so Hmm. by about halfway through the race i just thought stop listening to the splits this is your moment alex run (laughs) and 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 it turned out that he was totally wrong i had been running quite normal splits But because I believed I was running so fast, I sort of unshackled myself from all these self-limitations and expectations. And I ended up running 352, which was a nine-second personal best after four years of no improvements. And then what happened after that was what really blew my mind is that in my next race, I ran 349. So another three seconds faster. Whoa. And then my race after that, I ran 344 and qualified for the Olympic trials. So something had switched in my mind just right. by being deceived. I had, <laughs> I had changed. So, so from then on, I could never fully believe the kind of human body as a
0: machine picture of, of human limits. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Alex Hutchinson, the author of Endure Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. One of the um, really interesting things about the kind of how the mind-body connection here is um, that economists have taken millions, I think, of uh, times of people running marathons and looked and crunched the numbers on those times. And you would think, you know, if you've ever watched a marathon on television, the New York Marathon, the Boston Marathon, whatever. You see people coming, obviously, in waves across the finish line. For hours and hours and hours they come across. But interestingly, there is a huge spike up right before every hour mark. So that even though people are fatigued, it seems like they're saying to themselves, I don't care. I know I can't take much more. I got to get in under the five hour mark, under the six hour mark, whatever it is.
1: Yeah. It's, and what's amazing is if you really parse the data, you can see, okay, there's this the same pattern, but a little smaller for the half hour marks. Really, And the same pattern, but even a little smaller for the 10 minute marks.
0: Really, okay. So
1: I don't know why, but we care about round numbers and it changes our motivation and it changes our conception of what's worthwhile and how, how deep we can dig. And the, the thing for me is that if you talk to someone who just ran a 403 marathon mm-hmm. and you ask them if they were trying hard at the end, they're going to say, darn right, I was trying hard at the end. I was giving everything I could, so th- it's not a subjective difference where they're well, I'm just going to jog it in. It's something changes in your perception of the effort when you have when when there's some incentive like that, you discover that oh, actually, there was another gear, but my brain was hiding it from me unless it became really, really important to access that extra reserve.
0: Have scientists looked at what your body does? in that last few minutes when you're like, I got to make it in under four hours. I got to make it in under five hours. And when you say you give it everything at the end, I mean, presumably you're running a marathon. You're pretty much giving it everything, you know, for 26 miles. So like what happens in that last push to, as you say, uh, very often try to make it in under a round number when lots more people cross the finish line than they do after the round number.
1: Well, so here's a sort of comparable example. There is a really interesting study uh, looking at cyclists in a heat chamber, asking them to go as hard as they could. Okay. And when you're exercising in hot weather, one of the key limiting factors is your core temperature. It reaches a certain point and you just can't push it any farther. And okay. that's what kind of is your ceiling. Right. But they gave these cyclists two weeks of training in, in motivational self-talk. So learning to replace, you know, in the middle of their cycling, rather than having the words, you know, it is so hot in here i'm burning up echoing in their head learning to sort of tamp that down and say you're ready for this you can do this keep going mm-hmm. and what they found is yes their performance improved they they were able to increase their their time to exhaustion but they also found that they were able to push their core temperatures about half a degree higher by the end of the mm-hmm. of the of that test so what it mm-hmm. says is Yes you're you're giving it everything as far yeah. as you know in a marathon or in these other contexts sure. but everything is a subjective construct and there is a little bit more of a physiological reserve that you can access for better or worse uh, when the stakes are high enough
0: hmm. Do you think that elite athletes olympic athletes their trainers do they take this kind of Motivational self-talk seriously? Do you think they re- subscribe to it? I just wonder to what degree they care about this or may, or other pieces of the science of endurance.
1: Yeah, honestly, I I think there's a kind of a a linearly increasing relationship that the higher the level you get in sport, uh, the more likely you are to find that someone's working with a sports psychologist or or, or mm-hmm. really paying attention to this stuff. And and you know when I was a a college track athlete, we had a sports psychologist working with our team, and we thought it was just the greatest joke ever. We just laughed and laughed at all the silly little things right. they, they told right. us about self-talk. We, did, right. we just thought, you know, hey, take care of my VO2 max, take care of my muscles, and I, I don't right. need to worry about having a mantra to say.
0: Well, because you thought these, these are bodies we're talking about. There are hard and fast rules here, and, like, you can tell yourself whatever you want, but it doesn't make it true.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, exactly. And of course, there's there's some truth to that. Like, it doesn't matter how strong my mind is, I'm not going to go out and, and win the Tour de France this summer. Or right. anything like that. So the, the, <laughs> right. there are limits. So it's, it's more right. a question of when you're getting about getting the most out of yourself rather than allowing yourself to sort of suddenly become Superman. And I, I think it's a growing trend. Like, I think there's more and more realization with every year that you're, you're leaving seconds on the table or you're leaving points on the table if you're not doing something to try and optimize your mental game. Now, I don't think anyone knows the definitive right way to maximize the mental part of, of of sport, but everyone knows it's important now.
0: I wonder for people who are not elite athletes and who like, you know, they go to the gym, they do a few reps of this or that, what they can learn in terms of thinking about this science and endurance and what an individual can endure. Because even if you're, you know, not a great athlete, you are thinking all the time about like, can I handle, you know, 10 more minutes on this machine or can I do a few more reps or whatever? Can I do that? And will I be okay? Is it okay to keep pushing? Just talk about like what somebody who's very uh, sort of run of the mill um, uh, athlete in the afternoons or whatever can learn about this.
1: Yeah. You know, honestly, I think that the takeaways are actually much more powerful for the rest of us than they are for elite athletes. Hmm. So I think there's a really important lesson to learn about the difference between yellow lights and red lights, like the feeling of discomfort and actually encountering a limit. And I think for a lot of us, we we tend to conflate the two to think that if I'm panting really heavily, it means that my body doesn't have enough oxygen or that if my legs hurt, it means I better stop. Whereas we tend to have a lot of leeway between when the warning sign starts and when we actually hit a limit. And most of us mm-hmm. will never actually be able to push to a limit. And I think understanding that is something that can be really helpful in the context of if you're at the gym and you're, you're feeling like it hurts. I, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to send everyone off to go hurt themselves right. by, by, by <laughs> injury. But, but, but just to understand that the feeling that it's hard is a feeling and getting comfortable with that feeling will allow you to tolerate it for a little mm. bit
0: longer. We have talked about um, breaking the four minute mile. I wonder if you think we're getting close to the limits of what humans can do, and like what the human machine is is actually capable of, um, or, or are we never going to be at that point?
1: Yeah, you know that's a great question to argue about on a on a two hour run.
0: It, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's and if you no... have any breath left on that run, I, you wouldn't want to argue with me on that run about <laughs> it. <laughs>
1: yeah. So one thing I'll say is. Okay, we're definitely in uh, at a point of diminishing returns, right? Mm. Like it's not like 100 years ago where someone could come and break the marathon record by 10 minutes or whatever. But what's interesting is that if you look at the the, the records in things like horse racing and dog racing,
0: mm. where
1: there's, there's lots of money at stake because of the betting. So people are very serious about getting faster. Okay. But the records have kind of stagnated since the 1950s. Mm. Uh, once you got to the 1950s, like... Anything we've learned since then about hydration and nutrition and stuff hasn't really, ma- you know, allowed horses and dogs to get faster. The secretariat still holds the Kentucky Derby record right. from 1972. Interesting. Humans, on the other hand, have continued to steadily get faster in every event. Hmm. And I, I don't think it's because they're using different or better training or nutrition. I think that's a function of the brain that, uh, you know, that it comes back to this importance of, of belief. And for a human, you know that if someone has run a marathon in two hours, zero minutes, and 25 seconds— you know that it's not impossible to run two minutes, zero hours, and 24 seconds. Right. And you could set your benchmark based on what others have done. You can stand on the shoulders of, of the, those who've come before you. Whereas for a horse, it's always the first time they've encountered this situation. They're right. never thinking about how fast Secretariat went.
0: Alex Hutchinson is a columnist for Outside Magazine. He's the author of Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Alex, thank you so much. Thanks, Gareth. A lot of fun. The modern version of the four minute mile just might be the two hour marathon. And the shoe company Nike has spent a lot of money trying to help elite marathoners break two hours. Hutchinson wrote about their efforts in the New York Times. We're gonna have a link to his piece on our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash innovation hub radio.